You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to read those 14 verses in Hebrews chapter 1, and then we'll be skipping back to John chapter 3, which we'll be looking at this morning. Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say? Now I want to stop for just a second give you some context to Hebrews 1. In Hebrews 1, the author is laying out the case that Jesus is superior to the angels, lest there be any misunderstanding that Jesus and angels are somehow on the same plane, that they are equal or peers, the author is saying now in verse 5, to which of the angels did he, that is the Father, ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And the angels, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up, Like a garment, they also will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Now turn back to John chapter 3. And we'll read there verses 30 through 36, and then we'll pray together. John chapter 3, beginning at verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you now with your word before us, the voice of God in Scripture. We thank you that we have it written down, that it never changes, that it is always the same, that it is pure, true, and reliable. We ask now that as we look at your word, that you would open our hearts and our eyes to it. May you be pleased and may you be glorified here as we look at your word together. Spirit of God, be our teacher and make your word our primary focus and your glory our everlasting concern. 
We entrust these things to you and ask for your assistance here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we got halfway through a verse and stopped right in the middle of verse 34 in John chapter 3 because the subject matter kind of takes a a brief change there and what we've been doing is sort of laying out the five reasons why Christ must increase. Five things from the end of John chapter 3 that demonstrate the superlative nature of Christ, his utter preeminence, that he surpasses in worth and in value and in person all other people. There are five things that make him far superior to all other people, John included. And the central point of John chapter 3 is verse 30. He must increase and I must decrease. And everything before that, verses 27 to 29, you remember John is laying out the reasons why he must decrease. Verses 31 through 36, he gives us five reasons why Christ must increase or five things that demonstrate the preeminence of Jesus Christ above all things. Number one in verse 31, he came from heaven. Number two, in verse 32 through 34, he speaks words of truth. And we looked at that one last week. And then at the end of verse 34, he has the spirit without measure. Verse 35, he is sovereign. And verse 36, he is the offer of salvation. So we pick it up in verse 34. And we're going to look at, we're going to jump right into it. Because we're going to look at two of those five this morning. The first being that he has the spirit without measure. Someone just said, wow. Now, that wasn't even fair, as if I can't do more than one point in any given Sunday. We are looking at two of them today. First, that he has the Spirit without measure. And second, that he is sovereign. Those two things. So verse 34, he says, John says at the beginning of verse 34, and remember, this is, this is not John the Apostle writing. This is John the Baptist answering his disciples. His disciples have come and said, hey, Jesus, who is over on the other side of the river, he's baptizing, and more people are coming to him than are coming to you. And they were disturbed, perturbed by that, thinking that somehow John and Jesus had to be equals or peers, or that at least John should equal Jesus. And John is answering them and saying, no, no, he, what has been given to him is fine. He must increase, and I myself must decrease. Everybody coming to him is what I would expect. That's what I want. That's what my ministry is all about. It's all about him, and it's not about me. So verse 34. Uh, let me find it. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now this is point four, the three, or point one, depending on how you're naming it today or continuing with last week. He has the Spirit. Jesus has the Spirit without measure. Now it's kind of an, an odd phrase. It's difficult to understand, even in the Greek. And there's a couple different ways of understanding what John is saying. There are basically two possible interpretations. What does it mean when John says, He has the Spirit without measure, or He gives the Spirit without measure. What is John the Baptist describing? Now, keeping in mind the context, the context, of course, John is explaining all of the ways that he is inferior to Jesus. Here are all the ways in which Jesus is superior. Here are all the ways in which I am inferior. So John, in the context, remember, is describing this distinction between himself and Jesus. Why am I not a peer of Jesus, is what John is saying. Well, here are the things that make Jesus supreme, preeminent. That's what's going on in the context. So, two possible interpretations from what John is saying. And really, it all hinges down to this. It depends on who is doing the giving, in verse 34, and who is doing the receiving, in verse 34. Two possible interpretations. Now, just as an aside, if this were the only text that we had to look forward to that described the relationship between the Father, or sorry, between the Son and the Spirit, then we would take probably a couple of weeks to camp on this and explain this relationship that exists between the Son as God and the Spirit as God. 
Because we've already talked a lot about the relationship between the Father and the Son, and we're going to be talking more about that in coming weeks. But later on in the Gospel of John, John gives a lot of attention to the relationship between the Son and the Spirit. In fact, one of the things that makes John's Gospel unique from all of the other Gospels is the amount of time and attention that he gives to teaching on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. You take Matthew, Mark, and Luke and combine all that they say about the Holy Spirit, and it doesn't even begin to approach what John gives us, even in John chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. Amazing chapters on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and the relationship of the Son to the Holy Spirit and how they were related to each other and how they functioned together within the Trinity. So we will get to that, but not today. So today we're just going to explain what does John mean when he says he gives the Spirit without measure. So it boils down to two questions. Who's doing the giving and who's doing the receiving? Now the first option is this. That what John means is that Jesus, who possesses the Spirit, gives to his followers the Spirit without measure. In other words, there is no limit to the Spirit in the gift of Jesus to his followers. You follow that? So according to that interpretation, Jesus is the one doing the giving. We are the ones doing the receiving. So he gives to us the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, without measure. Now, I think that there's a serious problem with that, and it is this. We as his followers do not receive the Holy Spirit without limit or without measure. You see, that's not true. We are limited by something, aren't we? It is our flesh. It is our fallenness. It is our unredeemed humanity. No man on the face of the earth other than Jesus Christ could it honestly be said of that he possessed the Spirit without measure. We possess the Spirit, but it's not boundless. It's not endless. It's not... It's not in its fullest or in its fullness. Each of us possesses the Spirit in a different measure. Some more than others. Some are submitted to the work of the Spirit more than others. Some walk in the Spirit more than others. Some are under the control of the Spirit more than others. There are different gifts of the Spirit to each of God's children. So it cannot be said of you and I that we possess the Spirit without any limit. Because it is certainly the role, the function, the possession, the presence, the power of the Spirit of God is limited by my flesh, my humanity. It most certainly is. So I don't think that what's being described is the gift of Jesus to his people, the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not to say, listen, that I don't believe the Spirit of God indwells us individually and corporately. I believe that he does. That's not to say that the Spirit of God does not gift us. He does not empower us. He does not illuminate our hearts and our minds. That he does not convict us. That he does not dwell in us and strengthen us. He does all of those things, but he does not do it without measure, without limit. He can't because we are limited by the fallen humanity that we are shackled to, that we still live with. So the second option is what I already alluded to. There's only one person who possessed the Spirit without measure. And I think what's being described there is not the gift of the Son to us, but the gift of the Father to the Son. In other words, it is the Father who does the giving and the Son, the Lord Jesus, who does the receiving. Now, it is true that Jesus in his deity did not need the Holy Spirit, It is true that Jesus in His deity was not the Holy Spirit, but it is also true that Jesus in His humanity did need the Holy Spirit and was indwelt by the Holy Spirit and did possess the Holy Spirit. And because He was sinless humanity, He possessed the Spirit without limit, without measure. That can't be said of you and I, but it can be said of Jesus. But you say, Jim, it doesn't sound to uh, to me like... It is the Father that's doing the giving in verse 34. It says, He gives the Spirit without measure. The implied receiver of the gift is the Son of God. The implied giver of the gift, He being God the Father. Look at verse 34. He comes from heaven, and He whom God sent speaks the words of God 
For he, that is God, gives the Spirit without measure. To whom has he, that is God, given the Spirit? Look at verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So I think at the end of verse 34 and in verse 35, it is the giving of the Father to the Son that is being described. The Son who came from the God, the Father, was sent by God. He speaks the words of truth, for He, the Father, gives the Son the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things to Him. He has committed all things into His hand. Not just the Spirit, but all things. So Jesus possesses and has the Spirit without measure. Now I want you to notice that all three members of the Trinity are mentioned in our passage. Did you notice that? The Father is mentioned, the Son is mentioned, and the Holy Spirit is mentioned. Now, all three of those persons are three separate persons. They're not all one person. They're three separate persons, and they exist eternally together in that relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's never been a time when the Son became the Son or the Spirit became the Spirit. God never divided Himself. He has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one in substance and one in essence, one in purpose, one in aim, one in design, one God, three persons, not three different gods. So here you have... Here you have delineated the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son came to do the Father's will. The Father gave to the Son the Holy Spirit. Now, it's true that as God, He didn't need the Holy Spirit because He was God. He was always united with the Holy Spirit, the Christ was. But it is also true that in His humanity, He did need the Holy Spirit because He was man. Not fallen man, sinless man, but man nonetheless. So viewed from the vantage point, and this is really easy stuff, I know, and probably most of it review for you, Viewed from the vantage point of His humanity, we say of the Lord Jesus Christ that He was indwelt by the Spirit of God and the Father gave to Him the Spirit without measure. Viewed from the vantage point of His deity, we say that Christ, who was God, was never separate from the Spirit at all. He is one in substance and one in essence with the Spirit, though different in person. Does that make sense? Of His deity, we say He was always God. He had the Spirit of God. He was never separate from the Spirit. didn't need the Spirit because He was never away from the Spirit. But viewed from the vantage point of His humanity, we say of Christ, He did have the Spirit and He was given the Spirit without measure. So what is the relationship of the Son to the Spirit? We get a glimpse of it. And it is this, that the Spirit came to indwell the person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was both God and man, and He and He alone possessed the Spirit without measure. Now, that cannot be said of any apostle, any prophet, any king, any priest who has ever lived. It can only be said of Jesus Christ. That is one of the things that makes him preeminent. That's what distinguishes him from John. And that's basically what John is saying. John would be able to say this. Of me, it can be said that I might possess the Spirit and I might be filled with the Spirit. And the Spirit empowers all my works and He empowers my ministry. And He gives me revelation the words to say. But that work of the Spirit of God, that ministry and indwelling of the Spirit of God is limited in me. But concerning Him... The one who must increase, he has been given the Spirit without measure. That's what makes him preeminent. So first, he came from heaven, verse 31. He speaks words of truth, verse 32. He has the Spirit without measure. Now fourth, the fourth thing out of the five, he is sovereign. Look at verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. I love that verse. I love that verse because quite frankly, friends, that describes something that human Human thinking cannot even begin to plumb the depths of that reality. Nor can human words begin to describe the profound love that exists between the Father and the Son. The Father loves the Son. That is an amazing statement. 
And it is accommodated to you and I in our sinfulness and our finiteness in this sense, that whatever it is that you picture love as being, and whatever it is that you picture the Father and His relationship to the Son, and the love that exists of of the Father toward the Son and the Spirit, and the Son toward the Spirit and the Father, and the Spirit toward the Father and the Son, that love in perfect unity and harmony that existed within the Trinity, whatever you picture that to be and whatever you imagine that to be, it is not even a glimpse, not even a spark of the type of love that is being described here. You and I cannot even begin to fathom the eternal, perfect, infinite, superlative, matchless, endless, boundless love that existed between the members of the Trinity. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Now, the giving of all things into the hand of the Lord Jesus is an expression of the love of the Father that He had for the Son. And I would put it this way. In the council of the Trinity, at some point in eternity past, it was determined that the Son would be the one who would mediate the kingdom of God and rule in the kingdom of God in His creation and His universe. That all things would be handed over to the Son. The activities of the Father in judging and in resurrecting and in creating, those are given to the Son. So that we can say of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, being fully God, that He is the Creator of all things, the Sustainer of all things, the Upholder of all things by the Word of His power. He is greater than the angel, and He is the Redeemer of all men who will ever be redeemed. Not only that, but He is the one who will resurrect all men, and He is the one that will be the judge of all the wicked, and the Savior of all those who are given His righteousness. All of that is given to the Son. The rule and the administration and the upholding of all things. So that He disposes of all the Father's works, and He does all the Father's will, and everything is committed into the hands of the Son. He is absolute, total, sovereign ruler over all things. There is, in the language of Hebrews chapter 2, nothing that has not been subjected to the Son. All things. And the New Testament describes this in every conceivable way that the New Testament writers could describe it. In Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me on heaven, in heaven and on earth. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, He has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when He says all things are in subjection, it is evident that He is expected to put all things in subjection to Him. Ephesians 1, verse 22, He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church. You're noticing the repetition of all things and subjection. And who's being described? The Son is being described. This is magnificent language. The Father loved the Son and has given to Him all things. Colossians 1, He is before all things. In Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place, preeminence in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Philippians 2.9, God has highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is having all things in subjection to Him. Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 4, and we read this earlier, He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. He upholds all things by the word of His power. Hebrews 2 says, He did not subject the angels to the world to come, subject to the angels the world to come, 
which we are speaking of, but one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you're concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. And the author of Hebrews says, that's speaking of Christ. You have put all things into subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. How many things are subject to the Son? You getting it yet? All things. All things in subjection to the Son. First Peter 3.22, he says that Jesus is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Luke 10, verse 22, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son is who is the Son except the Father, and who is the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And then John chapter 5, verse 20. I just want you to turn over there for just a second. See this with your own eyeballs. John chapter 5, verse 20. For the Father loves the Son. Ah, see the similar language from 3, verse 20, uh, 35. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. And the Father will show Him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone. He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. And he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. All things have been subjected to Jesus. Why? So that in honoring Him, we might honor the Father through Him. The three members of the Trinity and the eternal councils of the Trinity before time began said, we will commit all of this to the administration of the Son. And He will mediate over our kingdom, over this universe, and over all things. And all things, visible and invisible, in earth and in heaven, will be subject to Him. So that all men may come to Him, adore Him, and honor Him. And in doing that, they may come and adore and honor the Father. And that is why Christ is the watershed issue. What you do with Him matters. Why? Because to dishonor Him is to dishonor the Father. And to disbelieve Him is to disbelieve the Father. And to reject Him is to reject the Father. And to reject the Son, or is to honor the Son, is to honor the Father as well. All things have been committed unto Him, unto the Son, and all things are in subjection to Him. Another way of saying this is this. He is sovereign. Period. No questions. No questions asked. Is there some corner of the universe over which He does not rule? None. Is there any element of His creation over which He does not exercise control at every given minute? None. What is He not sovereign over? He is not sovereign over nothing. He is sovereign over everything. And He rules over everything. As the psalm writer says, the Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. What is left to be subjected to the Son? Is there anything that is not under His authority, under His command, and under His will? Anything at all? There is nothing. I've been reading in recent weeks, actually recent years, this book by Charnock, The Existence and Attributes of God. Big, thick book. I'm in volume two now. It's taken me forever to get through this thing. And I just happened to be reading through the chapter on God's dominion. I came across a quote by Stephen Charnock. This is one of the old Puritans written in the 1600s. And he says that God's rule extends over angels and demons, over wicked and good, over rational and irrational creatures. All things bow down under his hand. Nothing can be exempted from him because there is nothing but was extracted by him from nothing into being. All things essentially depend upon him and therefore must be essentially subject to him. 
the extent of his dominion flows from the perfection of his essence. Since his essence is unlimited, his royalty cannot be restrained. His authority is as void of any imperfection as his essence is. It reaches out to all points of heaven above and earth below. End quote. And here's what Charnock is saying. The fact that God rules over all, his sovereignty is an expression of his very essence. Sovereignty is not something that he chose to take of himself. It is something that he has by nature of who God is. And he is, lacks any imperfection. He lacks any qualifications. He lacks any imperfections or smears upon his nature. And so does his sovereignty. And he and his sovereignty rules and reigns over all things. And it is infinite. And there is no corner of the universe to which you can go in which he is not sovereign. Kings on our earth, when they leave their little speck of dirt on this little planet in this vast universe, when they leave their little speck of dirt, dirt over which they rule and exercise dominion, and they go to another little speck of dirt, they leave all of their dominion behind them. But not so with God, because there is no corner of the universe that he can go to in which he is not king and over which he does not rule. Because every molecule depends upon him for the beginning of its existence, for the continuation of its existence, and for its sustenance, Every molecule is under his sovereign hand of control. Now you say, what about those who are in rebellion to the Son? What about demons and Satan? Are they under his sovereign control as well? They most certainly are. They are in rebellion, but they are under his control. They face him not as one who is benevolent toward them, but as one who will be their judge. God controls Satan. He controls the demons. He can stop them. He limits their activity. He limits their sin. He limits their ability to affect and influence you and I. He limits them all the time. And if God ever took his hand off it and said, Satan, you have your way and do whatever you want, friends, this whole world would be a bloodbath of unimaginable proportions. God is the one who is in control. Some say, well, because there is rebellion under his control, he must not be in control. Just because the prince has rebels under his dominion does not mean that he no longer sits on the throne. God sits on the throne and he has allowed rebellion. He has allowed this usurping of his power. He has allowed this revolution to take place. But there's coming a day when he will put it down because he is sovereign and he exercises that power. And when he wants to, he is going to say, it's over. That's it. It's done. No more. I've had my fill of it and it's over. You've had your run. You've tried your best. And now I'm stepping onto the stage and the whole drama is over. I'm taken back. I'm taking back what is rightfully mine. I've allowed you this rebellion for a period of time, and now it's over with. God is sovereign, and he has the ability to do that, and he will do that someday. But is God's sovereignty limited by your choice and my choice? That's really where it gets into the stick of the issues, right? Does human choice limit the sovereignty of God? Has God abdicated his throne, or has he chosen to share his throne with sinful fallen man? I'll scoot over and put you and your choosing right up here beside me. Because I would never do anything to affect you or influence you that you didn't want to have happen. Has God abdicated His rule to make room for man's choice? Or is God sovereign over man's choice, using what we choose and using what we do for His own glory and for the advancement of His kingdom? He is sovereign over it. There is no creature, there is no molecule, and there is no monarch that is outside of his jurisdiction and his sovereign command and control. He rules in the heavens and he does what he pleases. He has established his throne and he rules over all rebels and those who willingly submit to his throne. 
Our God is sovereign. Charnock, one more time. And I haven't made my way through this entire chapter, and if I did, this would be probably three sermons where I just quote Charnock. Charnock, his dominion extends over men. It extends over the highest potentate as well as the meanest peasant. The proudest monarch is no more exempt than the most languishing beggar. He lays not aside his authority to please the prince, nor strains it up to terrify the indigent. Both the powers and weaknesses, the gallantry and peasantry of the earth stand and fall at his pleasure. Man in innocence was under his authority as his creature, and man in revolt is further under his authority as a criminal. Did you catch that? That's beautiful. Man as a rebel is under his authority as a criminal. Man as a creature is under his authority as a creator. In other words, he has authority because he is created, and all men are under that. But when you rebel, you're under his authority as a criminal. That's not where you want to be if you're in rebellion to God. Man in his innocence was under his authority as his creature, and man in his revolt is further under his authority as a criminal. As a person is under the authority of a prince as a governor while he obeys his laws, and further under the authority of a prince as a judge when he violates his laws. Man is under God's dominion in everything, in his settlement, in his calling, and in the ordering of his very habitations. Acts 17.26, God says that God has set the boundaries for the habitation of every man. That is all under God's sovereign control. You can't move, you can't do anything unless God has allowed you to do it or caused you to do it. You rebel against God, it's because God has allowed you to rebel. But He could stop you, He could squash you, He could destroy you, He could cut you off, He could keep you from doing it if you want, if you wanted to. He's chosen not to. He is sovereign. He has established His throne in the heavens and He rules over all. So Jesus Christ is preeminent. He is superior for five reasons. Because he comes from heaven, he speaks the words of truth, he has the spirit without measure, and he is sovereign. He is sovereign. And all of this, of course, culminates and climaxes in verse 36. If it's true that he is the sovereign of the universe, that he upholds all things by the word of his power, if that is true, then it must necessarily follow that to believe on him is to have eternal life, and to not obey him is to face the wrath of God forever. He who believes in the Son has life eternal. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Can you possibly rebel against this sovereign king of the universe, hate him, shake your fist at him, violate his laws, turn your back upon him, refuse to bow your knee to him, refuse to submit to him, refuse to acknowledge his lordship, his kingship, his rule, his supreme worth? Can you possibly do all of that and shake your fist at God your whole life and then end your knee and expect to step into his kingdom and pollute his heaven with your vile presence. Can you possibly expect that? No, you cannot. That is why salvation comes down to what you do with Jesus Christ. He is the watershed issue. If you will obey him, if you will believe on him, he will give you eternal life. If any man is to receive clemency and forgiveness and eternal life, he can only come to one place to get that, and that is to the Son, because the Father has loved the Son and has given all that into his hands. All of that is into his hands. Why is it that we must come to Christ for salvation and not just God in general or God however we make him or any idol or Muhammad or Buddha or Zoroaster? Why is it that we must come to Christ and Christ alone for salvation? It is because the sovereign God of the universe has committed all things into his hand. And if you want salvation, you have to come to Christ and Christ alone because that's the only place that it is offered. That is why verse 36 is there, which we'll get to next week. I close with one last quote. This one not from Charnock, J.C. Ryle. We must understand that the kingdom, the mediatorial kingdom, and the eternal councils of the Trinity has been appointed to the Son. By the terms of the everlasting covenant, the Father has given to the Son power over all flesh. 
to quicken whom he will, to justify, to sanctify, to keep, and to glorify his people, to judge and finally punish the wicked and the unbelieving, and at last to take to himself a kingdom over all the world, to put down every enemy under his feet. Christ has the keys of death and hell in his hand, and to him alone men must go if they want anything for their souls. Christ has full power given to him as the general disposer of all the Father's works, the executor of all his designs, the head of his church, the universal high priest of things to come, and the steward and disposer of all God's graces. End quote. The Father has loved, loved the Son, loves the Son, and has given all things into his hand. Salvation rests with him. So he comes from heaven. He speaks words of truth. He has the spirit without measure. And he is the sovereign ruler, king of all things. And that is why men must come to him for salvation. And he is the offer of salvation. That's the fifth thing, and we'll look at that next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that our salvation rests in the hands of a competent and capable king over all things, over all the universe. In trusting him, we know that we have trusted the eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you that there is no way that you will be kept from accomplishing your every purpose, your every design, and your every pleasure. We thank you that man's free will does not thwart your counsels. We thank you that our actions, our ignorance, our rebellion has never thwarted the counsels of your will. We thank you that you triumphed over our hearts and brought us into subjection to Christ. We thank you that you made us willing to come to him and that in him you have given us all things. Thank you for that regenerating work that you have done in our hearts and in our souls and that you have given us new life and salvation in Christ. We thank you for these things, and we know that there may even be some here today who have never been born again. They've never been regenerated and worked on by the Spirit of God. And we pray, O oh God, that you would bring men and women, boys and girls, to Christ by your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. Thank you for your goodness in Christ. Woo us to a draw into a better relationship and a closer heart to you. We thank you for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.